Revelations chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the church at Sardis, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have reached and heard, received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you still have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The ones who are victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirits say to the church. And the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he arose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rick. So we're going through these seven churches of uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Like I said about uh, 12 years ago, some of us from the church went to each uh, site. Um, We've talked about Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, and last week it was Thyatira. Uh, This week I wanted to call it Sleepless in Seattle, Uh, or maybe I should call it Sleeping in Sardis, specifically Dead in Sardis. And let's just talk a little bit about Sardis. It was a very important city. It was 50 miles east and still is, uh, of Ephesus, a center for trade at the junction of five main roads. Uh, Many people in that city worshipped Artemis. There was a temple that they dug up there, uh, the temple to Artemis, and many other gods and goddesses, up to 50. Uh, They were known for their manufacture of woolen garments, and archaeologists also have dug up uh, a gymnasium there, a synagogue there, And many say there was a gold rush there. It may have been where the myth of Midas started, you know, that golden touch of Midas right here in the area of Sardis. And during the time, 2,000 years ago, Sardis was probably about 30,000 people. And in Sardis, there were lots of worship by the Jews, uh, thus the synagogue was there, uh, but not to Jesus. Uh, lots of worship to Artemis, but not to Jesus. Very wealthy area, people who are essentially in it for the gold rush. And there was apparently a Christian church right there in Sardis. Remember, the news of Jesus had spread from Jerusalem, and the gospel had come to this place in Turkey, 
Asia Minor, and some people had become Christians. And so John is an old man now. He's the only uh, apostle left. All the others were martyred. And he was a disciple, of course, of Jesus. He was banished to the island of Patmos, about a four-hour boat ride from Ephesus. And he's exiled, and then Jesus shows up to him. He's probably in a cave somewhere, and Jesus has a message for the church here at Sardis, and Jesus, in his ascended state in heaven, he's looking down on this city of Sardis, and he sees what's going on. He writes a letter to them, and uh, Rick just read that letter from uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, and I'll say this, and I think it bears repeating, As Jesus gives these seven letters to seven churches, there are certain things that he repeats over and over and over again. And one is, to the angel of the church. And I think this is showing us that not only is there this physical and human leadership, there's spiritual and there's angelic leadership in every church. In Calvary, you need to know that what we see is only part of what's going on. Behind the curtain is the supernatural the invisible, and that is also what God sees. And there are angels, and there are demons, and demons are fallen angels who rebelled against God. And there's this supernatural battle that's always going on for the hearts of people and their families and their legacies and their cities and their nations and their world. And he goes on in verse one, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, this is interesting because in that day, there was this Roman emperor named Domitian. We've talked about him. And he thought he was God, and he declared himself to be God, and he wanted to be worshipped as God, and he, meant, he minted a coin of himself, and on the coin uh, was him with seven stars, and he was showing that he was the ruler of the world and the ruler of the heavens. Now, Jesus, even though he's in his ascended state in heaven, he not only knows what's going on in Sardis, he also knows that the emperor has made a coin of himself. And people who are reading this letter, um, they might maybe even have one of these coins right in their, their pocket. And what Jesus is saying here is Domitian's not the Lord. He's not God. He's not Savior. And that's what Domitian called himself. And Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord, and I'm God, and I'm Savior. And he's not the one who rules over the stars. I am. And so Jesus is here showing his uh his supreme, exalted, post-resurrection authority, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And then he says in verse one, I know your works, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, that's not a compliment. You know, that's like somebody walking up to you and saying, I heard this nasty rumor that you are a nice person. And Jesus said, you guys have this really awesome, wonderful, amazing reputation for being alive. But I know that you're dead. This is a church that Jesus has nothing really nice to say about. Uh, This is just a dead church. And he says, you're dead. And there's no encouragement here. There's nothing uh, praiseworthy. He just says, this is just a bad church. Have you ever seen a bad church? Just worthless, no good at all. It's a, it's a church like that. And Jesus has lots of rebukes for this church, but, you know, he doesn't mention heresy. So they're not really into false teaching, apparently. He doesn't mention persecution, so they're not suffering. And here's what's happened. Uh, they're their own worst enemy. They can't blame suffering. They can't blame persecution. They can't blame poverty. They can't blame anyone. They just don't care. 
These people, they just don't care. They're completely indifferent. They're hard-hearted. They're stiff-necked. They're simply spiritually dead. They're just dead. And it's tragic when this happens to a church. Listen, just in the U.S. alone, about 3,500 churches die or they close every year. You drive by, nobody's ever going in, nobody's ever coming out, nobody's ever getting saved, nobody's getting baptized, nothing's happening, it's just dead. And that's exactly what was happening in the church of Sardis, nothing. Now in the city of Sardis, you have this large number of people who are really into the worship of Artemis at the temple uh, there in Sardis, the temple of Artemis, and they're very committed to I would, I would call it demonism. I would call it pagan worship to worshiping false gods and goddesses, to giving their time and their talents and their treasure. They're very, very devote, devoted. And then nearby is this church that just doesn't care about Jesus and doesn't care about other people, those people going to the temple of Artemis. And they keep meeting, but there's no life in their meetings. Have you been to a church service like that? You just sit there and you wonder, why am I here? Why are we here? What are we doing? Why do we exist? Where are we going? Who are we reaching? These are people who just are going through the motions, kind of like people maybe that were born in a church or grew up in a church and they go out of a sense of tradition, but there's just no heartfelt connection or conviction. There's no life-transforming passion. There's just nothing there, and that's exactly what's happening. Nothing. They're dead. But he tells them in verse 4 that there are a few faithful Christians who will wear white. Now, what's interesting uh, to this very day in this re- region of Sardis, there's, there's only a few faithful Christians. There are not enough Christians in this general area even to make up or constitute a church, just a few Christians. And in that day, a few thousand years ago, there were just a few, a few people who did love Jesus. And so when he's rebuking the church, he's saying, but there's a few people there, and I, I want them to know that I, I see who they are and, and how they behave and what they believe. And as a result, I don't want to just broad brush everyone. I want to commend the faithful few that are walking with me. And so Jesus honors them, and he acknowledges that. And he says that if they continue to walk with him, they can wear white and that they'll be with him forever. Otherwise, they're going to face judgment like a thief in the night. And what Jesus is saying, I could come at any moment. I could judge you. Uh, your life could end any second. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. Have a sense of passion. Have a sense of urgency. Walk with me in white. And when you hear the color white in the Bible, it, you, it's, it's to show purity. It's to show cleansing. It's to represent forgiveness. When Jesus died, he cleansed us from sin. And so, Calvary, we're, not, we're just not forgiven. We're actually clean in Christ. You're not defined by what you've done or by what's been done to you. You're defined by what Jesus has done for you. Amen? Yes. And you may feel dirty. You may feel guilty. And you may feel uh, unworthy. But Jesus looks at you because of his death. And he says, I love you. My death was for your sin. I'll take your sin, and I will give you my righteousness. And when believers in the Bible are shown to wear white, it's to show that we wear the righteousness, the purity, the sinlessness, the perfection of Jesus. And so you see this in places like Zechariah 3, where the people of God get to wear white. 
And you see this in Revelation 19 at the wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of the age where God's people are wearing white. And you see this at a Christian wedding where no matter what the woman has done, if she has repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, she gets to wear a white dress. Because why? Because Jesus makes her clean. That's why. And so here he says, if you come to me, I'm not going to berate you. I'm not going to harm you. I'm not going to condemn you. If you come to me, I'm going to cleanse you. We can fix that lifestyle of yours. You know, we could change your heart. We could give you a new life. And this is an invitation from Jesus. And for those of you who have sin in your life, it's not a secret. I mean, Jesus sees and he knows all. And sometimes we don't want to confess our sin because we, we don't want to get caught and we'll just, you know, blame shift and we'll deny it, we'll ignore it, we'll downplay it, we'll hide it. And Jesus is saying, just bring it to me and I will embrace you. I'll deal with the sin. I will clothe you in righteousness. I'm going to clothe you in white and then you can go and live a new holy life as one of my people. And that is the invitation that Jesus gives. Now, what would happen if Jesus was writing a letter to us and to our family or to our church And he would say, hey, you're just dead. You are dead. And this is different than dry. We were talking about this in Sunday school today. How many of you have had a a season of spiritual dryness? Yeah, I know I have. Dryness is different than deadness. Dryness is this. I don't feel like I'm connected to the Lord and it bothers me. And I want to get beyond that. Deadness is I don't feel connected to the Lord and it doesn't bother me. And I, I'm really not interested in connecting with the Lord. And so I want to distinguish between dryness and deadness. And so for whatever reason, we can end up in this place of just being dead. And so I want to ask a few questions. Um, I think they're in the, in the outline. But is your spiritual life routine or ritual? I'm using ritual in a, in a positive sense here. Is it routine or is it ritual? You know, is attending church or you know, reading your Bible, praying, giving money to the cause of the gospel, fellowshipping with other believers, evangelizing non-Christians. Is that routine or is it ritual? And do you know the difference? I mean, there are things that we all, that we do all the time and Christianity is not to be routine. It's to be ritual. Routine is we just sort of, you know, check, (laughs) check the boxes of, you know, minimal obedience and compliance and And ritual is where there's meaning, there is value, there's purpose, there's mission, and there is passion. And those of you who are married, there are certain things in life that can be routine, uh, but they should be ritual, right? You know, I mean, every time you sit down together to eat, it could be routine or ritual. It could be just another thing we have to do or a meaningful moment uh, together, you know, holding hands or going on a date or going on a trip, whatever it is, it can be routine or ritual if you're with someone you love. And if you really don't really love them, if you don't really know them, if you're not really pursuing one another, if you're not, you know, cultivating that friendship, it's just routine. You know, we get up, we have breakfast, we go to work, we come home, we finish the chores, we do the dishes, and then we go to bed. The exact same thing can be happening in the relationship of another couple, and they could be doing the exact same things, but for them, it's it's uh, not ritual, or it is ritual. It's not routine. They wake up, and they're glad to see their spouse. And when they sit down to eat, it's meaningful 
connection and they're talking, they're conversing back and forth and when they're away from one another over the course of the day, when they gather together at night and they rejoin after a day's work, they're looking forward to it. You can see it in their eyes and they're happy to be together. They're, they're happy to reconnect. That's, that's ritual. The same thing happens in our human relationships. The same thing that happens in our human relationships can happen in our relationship with Jesus. It can be routine. You know, I went to church. You know, I, I read the Bible this morning. I went to church. I gave my 10% tithe. Or it could be ritual. I love Jesus. You know, he loves me. And I'm getting to know him. He already knows me. And we're growing together in our relationship. And I look forward to the opportunities that I have to build that relationship with him. And one of the ways that individuals and families and churches become dead is what is supposed to be ritual becomes routine. And if it's routine, eventually you just stop doing it because there's really no passion for it. Another question. Are your affections aroused by God? Are you one of those people that you spend enough time in prayer and with the Holy Spirit and the scriptures to be passionate. Uh, we need to be passionate about things that we, or, or we tend to be passionate about things that we invest our time and energy in. And we tend to be passionate about people that we get to know and we take time to invest in. And so the question is with Jesus, how are your passions? Are your passions and affections aroused? How many of you truly know some people that have like a genuine uh, passion for Jesus Christ. I mean, they just do. Uh, when they talk about him, I mean, their eyes light up, their, their voice goes up, they're just excited, it seems to them, that he's a living person and a friend who is actually in their life. And so they relate to him in a way that's very different than, quote, religion. And it's not just dutiful, you know, box-checking or moralism, you know, do this, don't do that. There's this heartfelt, emotional, passionate affection and connection. And if you don't have that, don't fake it. But instead, you should make time to be with Jesus. Make time for that quiet time, that silence, that solitude, that prayer, Bible reading. Uh, this is also getting time with other believers who do love Jesus and are passionate because sometimes when we're all by ourselves, it's kind of like that stick that's taken out of a fire. After a while, it just starts to go cold. And the key is to huddle up with the people of God and to also capture some of the passion that they might have. Another question, are there any parts of your spiritual life in which you're just going through the motion? I mean, some of you were raised in homes maybe like that to where your parents would say, read the Bible. You know, but they said it in, a, in such a way that it sounded like, you know, read the phone book, you know, right? <laughs> it, was, it was just something you had to do, you know, get ready. You know, we got to go to church, you know, we got to go to church. Like what? We, we got to go to traffic court, right? Uh, we have this appointment. We have to be there. Otherwise, we're going to get in trouble. The issue is Christianity isn't a bunch of just have to's. It's a bunch of get-tos. You know, if God really does love us, and if his ways are good, and if he really is like a good, good father, a loving heavenly father that we sing about, then he invites us into communion with himself and community with his people. He's not trying to make us miserable. He loves us in thy presence, his fullness of joy. And this really comes down to your view of God. And this dead church in Sardis, I mean, their relationship with God was more of just like moral compliance 
and religious obedience. And the sad, cold, hard truth is that many churches, many churches are that way. And I don't mean to broad brush every church, but about 80% of churches are plateaued or declining just in the United States alone. And the same is true in many nations. It's like guilt-ridden people are going through religious exercises and young people don't care because there's no passion. There's no mission. There's no affection. There's no compulsion. And guilt doesn't last for a lifetime, does it? And guilt cannot sustain a faithful walk with God for a lifetime. It has to be love, doesn't it? It has to be joy. Another question, do you really care about Jesus and people? You think about it. The temple of Artemis was one of the great wonders of the world. And the one in Ephesus was named one of the seven great wonders of the world. And there are people coming from, at least in that day, all over the region and and from other nations to this place to worship this demon god led by a guy who emasculated himself. And if at the end of the day you wake up as a Christian and you say, well, I don't really see any opportunity here. I don't see any need. I don't see any mission you systematically, intentionally just closed your eyes to the problem. But this is what happens all the time because, you know, it's like we get on a plane, we go halfway around the world and we see an obvious need and yet when we get in our car and we drive to work, we don't. And we don't look at our neighbors and say, you know, there's an obvious need there. We don't look at our family our friends, our co-workers, and say, you know, there's a big opportunity. And we don't drive by our own temples, you know, the strip clubs and the grocery stores and the movie theaters and the sports stadiums and the abortion clinics and say, there's an obvious need there. Were the people who lived in Sardis 2,000 years ago to get on a plane and fly to our own town right here in Fargo, they would see our temples, wouldn't they? Would they not? They'd be sitting at, let's say, a football stadium or a baseball stadium or a basketball arena saying, look at all the money that these people spent to make this massive, massive construction project happen. Look at all the the passion that they brought to it. They, They showed up early and they stayed late and they gave lots of money for entrance fees and they worshiped and they worshiped the leaders like gods. And they put the names of their sports stars on the back of their jerseys, and they cheered them like Greek gods. Hey, I've got a lot of Cub stuff stuff in my office, so I'm, I'm preaching here to myself. And see, what happens is idolatry is what we tend to see in those other cultures, right? You know, those pagan cultures, and we miss it in our own. And so one of the good things about studying a place like Sardis is that we see the obvious need, and we ask, how could a church not see this? How could a church not care about all those people going to the temple of Artemis? And then we need to ask, what am I not seeing? Where am I not caring? Where are the opportunities that God has given me that I'm simply just too busy dead or indifferent or hard-hearted to really care. And it happens to all of us, Calvary. It does happen to me. Another question, would it really bother you if Calvary Church died and closed? Would that bother you? You know, all these people, all these families, some of you are new Christians, children, 
all these opportunities? What if it all went away? Listen, Sardis, I think, is a warning to all churches that are living on past glory. Dr. Vance Havner said spiritual ministries go through four stages. A man, like John Wesley, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. I mean, you go over to Europe. Look at all the beautiful, gorgeous church buildings in Europe, and they're empty, dead. And it's happening right here in the United States of America. You know what the seven last words of the church are, don't you? Those are written on the tombstone of every dead church. We've never done it that way before. Seven last words of a dead church. And let me tell you, every living thing changes. The church at Sardis hasn't changed much at all. It's the same as it was basically 2,000 years ago. And it's because it's dead. And you know what? Dead things really don't change. Living things change. I've got an eight-year-old grandson I'm going to see in a few hours. And uh, in five years, he's going to change. I've got four granddaughters at various ages. And in seven years, they are going to change. Anything that's alive changes. Either grows or it dies. And so the question for churches is not will there be change. The question is will the change be for life or for death? Will it be forward progress or sinful rebellion? There's going to be a change. And for those of you who are parents, would you agree that having a child forces you to change? I mean, what changes when you have children? Everything, right? Your schedule, your budget, your health, your sleep. But you welcome that change because there's new life there. And you're so willing to be inconvenienced. As Christians, we want to welcome new babies. We want to welcome new spiritual babies as people come to faith in Jesus, and then we welcome them into the church. And what that requires is change, because things have to change. And if we're dead, we fight the change. And if we're alive, we embrace the change. And Jesus' word to the church here was, you're dead, you're not changing, but that's because you're dead. And what happens is, it goes from a movement to an organization, to an institution, to a museum. This is what denominations do. This is what churches do. So God, the Holy Spirit, works. And there's this movement. Then you've got to organize it so there's an organization. You start a church or like a missions agency or a denomination, and then what it becomes is an institution. An institution is not about the future. It's about the past. It's not pushing forward. It's about defending what we've already obtained. And they start talking about the good old days and the glory days, you know, like, do you remember when? And then it becomes a museum, and there's not a future, there's not a mission, there's not a passion, there's not a life. You just talk about what used to happen. And this is a, a hard word, but I think it's a good word. We need to ask ourselves, do I want to be a part of a movement, or do I want to be a part of a museum? Do I want to be part of something that's growing, that's changing, or something that's already died and is just telling the stories of what God used to do a long time ago? So we can't just look at these historical examples, you know, in Ephesus, Pergamon, Thyatira, like Sardis, and criticize these people. We need to say that we're capable, we are capable of the exact same failure. And to take that to heart, and we want this place called Calvary to be alive. We want Jesus to, to be made much of here. 
We want new people, don't we, to meet Jesus Christ. We want legacy and generation and tradition in the very best sense of the world. And we want to hand to our children and to our children's children. And we want to hand to them a living faith, not a dead set of traditions and routines. And so the big word for Sardis is wake up. It's like they've been asleep. Strengthen what remains but is near death. And he says to repent and Calvary, I think this is an invitation. What Jesus is saying is even if you're spiritually dead, even if your family is dead spiritually or your church is dead spiritually or your denomination is dead spiritually or your movement is dead spiritually, you can repent. You can turn around. Things can change. It's never too late so long as you're alive. And so there's hope and there's this invitation and there's an opportunity that God gives through repentance. And he says, listen to the Holy Spirit. Something he says to each of the churches, you know, the way to keep our spiritual fervor and and passion in life is to listen to the Holy Spirit, right? Because he speaks to us through the Word of God. He speaks through circumstances. He sometimes gives us impressions and and leadings and, and dreams and visions. He'll sometimes speak through other believers and circumstances and other authors and, and teachers. Wake up and repent. And Jesus says, you know what? If you don't do this, I'm going to take your name out of the book of life. And what he's saying is you're going to go to hell and I'm going to shut your church down. Oh. Now that should have got their attention. What if I said we got a letter from Jesus? Awesome, Dave. Open it up. I heard this nasty rumor that you guys were alive. Uh-oh. That's not starting very well. Well, what happens if we don't obey you? Oh, I'm going to send you to hell and shut your church down. You'd think at that point somebody would have raised their hand and made kind of a recommendation to do something. But sometimes it doesn't happen. And so the word for us today is like a sense of urgency. It's a sense of passion and compassion. Do I really believe that this church is here for me? Or that I'm here for God and for his people and his mission? Is this just a place where I want to get baptized and bring my kids and raise my family and show up at Easter and Christmas and whenever it's convenient for me? Because here's what kills a church more consumers and contributors. That's what kills a church. Where a church starts to die, when there are more consumers than there are contributors, there are more takers than there are givers, more people demanding things than giving of their time and talents and treasure, more people demanding service instead of volunteering hours, more people demanding commitment than prayerfully contributing for the forward progress and the well-being of the church. So I would just ask you, where are you? Are you dead or are you alive? Are you dead or alive? Next week, who is there that is dead that you need to speak to? Someone in your sphere of influence. And Jesus speaks to dead people, the spiritually dead, physically alive, spiritually dead. And he says, you know, this is wrong. I mean, this is unacceptable. This cannot continue. Things need to change right now. Is that our church? Is that friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, spiritual leaders? Is that our own denomination? Is that our own tradition? And we need to follow in the boldness of Jesus, 
receiving a hard word for ourselves and repenting of any deadness that we have and then modeling and mirroring Jesus' example and speaking boldly, compelling people who are spiritually dead toward life. The temple of Artemis is at Sardis. They dug it up. Many people worship false gods and goddesses at that temple, and yet the church of Sardis was indifferent. They were hard-hearted, stiff-necked. They quit caring. In a word, they were dead, dead in Sardis. Would Jesus say the same to us? Is your relationship with him routine or is it ritual? Is it passionate or is it just mere duty? Do you really care about Jesus and people? Are you dead or alive? Jesus calls you to wake up. Like it says in Ephesians, when the Apostle Paul was writing to that church, he quoted a verse that says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that's a promise. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your resurrection power, that because you live, we can too. And even though we were dead in trespasses and sins, you can make us alive through your grace and through your mercy. Thank you for this awesome gospel that we can celebrate through Holy Communion. We thank you for the juice and the bread. Make for it, uh, make, make it for us the 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 blood and the body of Christ. And Lord, I, I pray that as we partake of the, the bread and remember your body, and as we partake of the juice and remember your blood, that you would make yourself known to us once again as we do this together. Lord, I thank you that we can be a church family. I thank you, Lord, that there's always hope with you. And I thank you, Lord, for the future that you have for us as individuals and families, but for as a church body for Calvary United Methodist Church. Lord, we want to commit our lives again to you, and Lord, we want you to reveal any darkness in our hearts, Lord, any sin in our lives, Lord, that we need to turn away from and turn to you, remembering that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So thank you for this awesome time right now to experience your love again, your mercy again, your grace again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the call to the church at Sardis was to wake up, but that's not the only place where uh, the Bible tells people to wake up. At the end of Romans, I'm going to read this to you as a, a benediction. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen?